I'm Mike Ablon. This is how you sell without selling out. Roger's that. Hi, everybody. I'm Rogers Healy, the host of Rogers That, a podcast dedicated to selling without selling out. And today we have a true gem, uh, someone that I met a long time ago through another one of my heroes in the world of business, a guy named Newt Walker. Um, this guy will always be my mayor of Dallas because he exemplifies everything the city stands for. And that's inclusion, that's opportunity, that's growth and its vision. And today we have uh, my, my good friend, one of my mentors, someone that is family to me, uh, a, a consistent um, positive force in my life. Uh, we have Mr. Mike Ablon. Mike, thank you for coming today. Thank you. Thought you were doing the weather and I was doing traffic. Well, Mike, it's 99 degrees outside in Dallas and there's traffic. So now, so now we're to the weather and traffic. We're, gonna, we're good. We're going to do the podcast. We can get to the program. Okay. Yeah. See, that was, so, that and, was good. That everyone, was efficient. Just, just prepare to have your minds blown today and for me to be as quiet as I've ever been because, uh, Mike, not our first guest, but a first guest to come and say, you know what? Hey, listen, I took the questions and I rearranged them because I think it will flow better like that. And that that's a typical leader. And that's someone who's going to give us a lot of wisdom today. Um, in the world of sales. So, Mike, uh, thanks for being a part of this. Nah, thanks for having me. Yeah. It's um, Friday. Let's make it quick. Okay, Mike, thank you for coming today. It's and everyone, good to know you. Good to see you. That's Rogers that, everybody. <laughs> Enjoy your weekend. But now, for real, why don't, why don't you give us a little background? I, I know your story, and I've obsessed over it since I first met you and became your fan. But maybe give us background as to, um, you know, whether it's your af affinity for Dallas or business or development or real estate or how you see the world, where you are right now, what, what got you here? What got me here? Um... I grew up in Dallas, so it's home. But not just, I mean, like, you're, how many generations? Yeah, five that? generations. That's unbelievable. So I was in Barcelona um, a long time ago after school, and I had a fellowship in Europe, and I'm going around Europe with a backpack, and I'm painting and sketching and writing poetry, and I got to Barcelona, and I saw the work of Gaudi, which is pretty incredible for anybody who's seen it. They know it, and if you haven't, you should go there. But what blew my mind most was the notion of somebody spending 50 years working in one city to see how much you could actually be part of the fabric of a city and improve the city. So as part of my career, I've only worked in Dallas, and I'd like to spend 50 years working in one city, and hopefully I can fog a mirror at 80 and look at it and say, did I serve well? How'd it come out? How many years in are you? I am from that, um, 30 30. So 30 we, years. We got, we, got, we got two more decades left, but I want to make sure that you guys can all appreciate the reason that I am more excited about Mike than just about any guest we've had. Where, where'd you go to college? Uh, I went to, I got my engineering degree at Texas. I got my architecture degree at Texas and, and then, then my master's at Harvard. And then from Harvard, if I remember you lived in Chicago. Yeah. Um, between undergrad and grad school, I had this really cool opportunity to apprentice for a world renowned theorist who was writing theory, which you call postmodernism. His name was Robert Venturi. Wow. And then building monuments. And then I left there to go to France on a fellowship for something called the Paris Prize. They've had that each year for a couple hundred years. This would be like winning like one lottery and then going to win another lottery and then getting struck by lightning twice yeah. in, the same, in the same period of time. Yeah, and then, then grad school and um, in Boston. But, but, like, but get, I want to get inside your head. How did that even happen? Obviously, you learned at an early age that you were a salesperson and that you could go and kind of talk to anybody. But you get into school based on qualifications and a little bit of networking. But what, what was the actual process for going and getting these apprenticeships and kind of once-in-a-lifetime opportunities it's, with it's two different people. It's actually a pretty humbling story. I, uh, I applied to only two people after college, a gentleman named I.M. Pei in yeah. New York yeah. and this gentleman named Venturi. 
And I wrote him, well, this is before the cell phone. This is before the internet. So I wrote him seven letters and I finally got an interview. So I flew up there and I sat down and he said, I'm giving you this interview. So you'll stop writing me letters. And he's flipping through my portfolio and he's talking to me and he's going like this real fast. I'd stop, stop, hold on. I spent a lot of time on that. He said, son, I've looked at a thousand of these. I know what I'm doing. And he keeps on going and he looks at me and says, eh, I think you'll do. I said, great. And And that was it. I wrote a thank you note to uh, I.M. Pay, told him I was going to Venturi's office, and I moved to Philly. Philly, I, I said Chicago, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, I went to, moved to Philly, and I didn't know a single person. I got, a, I got an apartment on the first floor between a sushi bar and a It was second floor. It was between a sushi bar and a massage parlor over a used shoe store. They sold used shoes. Oh, my gosh. And then I took the train to work every day, and I worked. 10, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. And I was the happiest guy on earth at the greatest job on world because you just sat there and apprenticed under a very famous thinker. And you know the Kimball, that was done by Lou Kahn. Lou Kahn trained Venturi, and he was trained by another very famous man named Paul Cray. And it goes back hundreds of years. So you're getting into a mentorship after mentorship that goes through generations. Each of them were very different in what they did, but it was the training. That was... That was the lottery ticket, as you say. That was the luckiest thing that ever happened for me. What was your one takeaway from your first from your first mentor experience? What What did you learn that you're you're never going to forget? Oh God, I'll give you two. The first one was um, I asked him if I could work nights and weekends on my own on the Paris Prize competition, which was like six weeks, and he said sure. And so it's about the I, I figured I'd stay up all night every third night for five weeks and then take my one week vacation and sit at my desk for five days straight and finish the project and send it in. So I'm doing that and I'm at the, like the fifth of six weeks and I'm exhausted, I'm tanked, I'm dead. And I'm sitting at my desk and it's Saturday or Sunday night and it's just crickets, it's just me. And I'm looking at this thing thinking I'll never finish it and it's not good enough. And the door opens across the room and Venturi walks in. He walks across the room, doesn't say a word, stands behind me. So I'm sitting there and he's standing behind me and they go, eh. And he walks all the way back to the door, opens the door to leave, and looks at me and says, you know what? If you don't quit on yourself, you might just win. Huh. And he walks out. And it was right at that inflection point where you're about to just quit because you're so exhausted. Mm. And the, one of the greatest things I ever learned was to recognize when I'm at that breaking point and say, oh, I'm at the breaking point. I'm not going to break. Mm. Let's go. Go to the bathroom, wash your face, get two more Diet Cokes out of the machine, sit back down and hit the burners. Yeah, but that's why you're where you're at right now. I think that's a gift that you either have or you don't. I don't think people can learn how to be resilient and kind of press on. And I think that's part of the frustration of being a business owner for me, especially, is that you see people that have these God-given gifts that maybe don't exercise them. And then you read about all the cliches of the no traffic on the extra mile and whatever. And I think that those are people that are just kind of built differently. Yeah, that or the people who... I've had the great fortune to find something that has such a deep meaning from them. They yeah. can't stop. Yeah. They just can't stop doing it because it matters to them. Yeah. And it's important and it's relevant and there's something about it that's kind of special. Wow. So, okay, so take us from Philly. Where'd you go after that? Um, I went to Europe and I got a, a backpack and I had two satchels, one with books, poetry and, and books, and the other one with um, paintbrushes and sketches and sketch pads. 
And with my two satchels in my backpack, I went to Europe and I floated around Europe and lived in Europe, painting and writing about where culture and commerce and city fabric comes together to build cities. And I didn't have an agenda. Were you kind of like a, was it weird? Was it, were you like, everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? Or was it something that was pretty normal back when you were doing that? Uh, no, it was weird as hell. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was off the rocker. And, um, but here's the most, the thing that everybody, everybody thought was weird was um, you don't have a plan. Because when you have a plan, it's like you have blinders and you follow the plan. I wanted to follow my instinct. So I just kept on chasing an idea with the faith that it would, I would get there. But what was the, what was out. there? Just like in, in, like the well, sense in, of peace. No, no, no. The there was to t try to get to a deeper understanding of um, what makes for great cities. Yeah. What makes great places? See, there we go. And if I, and if I didn't lead with this, when I when I think of Mike, uh, there was a video game called Sim City back in the day that was you build cities, right? And it was a very simple game, but with a lot of complexities and. Mike is like a walking Sim City, and so maybe that's what I should have let in with. Like you were going and kind of studying what made these things great, knowing that you wanted to eventually come back to your hometown and, and add that kind of wisdom yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. So if you like go to the work of the design district in Dallas, for me, that was the first time I'd had a chance to really put together. And at that point, it's twenty-five years later, hmm. and you know it's working if somebody goes there and says, "Well, why do you like it?" I don't know. I just feel good. It just feels right. There's a lot of pieces going on, but it didn't say so tell somebody what the pieces are. You just say, do you feel good being you there? Yeah. feels like home. Yeah. So you're on your backpack tour and you got your paintbrushes and your sketchbooks and your poetry. And then at what point did you decide to go and actually take all the stuff you'd observed and learned and take it back to the country, to, the, to America and to your hometown? Um, when I ran out of money. Which was? Actually, I ran out of money about halfway through, so I'd put up an easel, I'd paint or sketch, I'd only speak French, and I'd sell them on the sidewalk. Seriously? Yeah. Dude, I'd this sell is those to a... get more money. Are you serious? And keep going. Yeah. So you were peddling paintings to go and continue your journey, and yeah. then people just stopped liking your paintings, or you stopped? No, I kind of ran out of gas. It was, <laughs> it was time. You know, it's called saturation point. Yeah. yeah. You pour water into a sponge, and at some certain point, the sponge is so full, the water's running off of it. Huh. It's when you kind of said okay, I need to just stop and digest it and try to put it in action. So I went back to grad school, which was putting finance and design and theory all together and try to actually make it work. Instead of just talking about it, thinking about it, try to make it functionally work. And that's a process too. Do you think that you have the most unique background of anybody that does what you do in the country? No, I think everybody's unique. I think, well, but I'm, but I'm saying well, literally the most cultured background and knowing that you probably are the only person that's an expert in all of these different angles and you have it from a different, different lens, literally. Yeah, I'd use the word expert carefully, but um, I will tell you my career in yeah. a different way. If you talk to, you know, if you study literature, they always talk about the plot and the story. The plot is um, girl rides off on her bike, gets hit by a tornado, some guys come along, pick her up, and drag her home, and she has this crazy dream, and then she wakes up in bed, and her dog Toto is there, and we know the story. That's the plot. The real story is a girl leaving to find out what matters in life and goes away to find, and in her dream, she sorts it out, and she realizes that what she's looking for isn't 
someplace else. It's, it's an inner peace or something. And that's the story of the wizard of Oz. Hmm. Um, I chase paradigm shifts. That's what I've wanted to do my whole life. So the story of my career is I went to work for Ross Perot when he was starting his real estate company and I wasn't really interested in building warehouses. For me, that's not really exciting. But this guy named Michael Dell, I think he flunked out of college. Maybe he did okay, dropped out, I don't know. This Dell guy, he isn't building computers. He's doing something incredibly fascinating. Instead of mass commodification, which is what was happening in the world, he was doing mass personalization. You get on this fad thing called the internet that wasn't gonna last long, and you go like this, and he makes a computer and it goes to your house. It doesn't make chunks of computer that go to a warehouse, that go to a store, and you take it home from there. It was mass personalization. So that warehouses that we were building was like that new intermediate step. It wasn't a warehouse. It was a logistics facilities, much more like what you call an Amazon building now, 30 years, 20 years before Amazon even existed. So you're saying that was for Michael Dell? Well, I'm using Dell as an example of what was starting to happen in the world. And then when I went to build office buildings, it was just Bill Gates guy. All these guys don't finish college, I guess, and do pretty good. And he had these teams of people that changed positions every 18 months. They wanted to build big, flat office buildings. So then I left there to go build office buildings because those hadn't been built. The world is changing. So what I was looking for in Europe was seeing how culture changes and how cities adapt to it to make where commerce and culture come together to build cities. Now, I was more interested, actually, in the part where you get the urban density, like the design district or Preston Center or um, Oak Lawn or Lower Greenville, the other places I've worked on. Um, but it's the, so I think what I have and, done, and for those of y'all that are watching this that aren't familiar with Dallas, these are the most bullseye locations you can ask for. I mean, it'd be like going to Manhattan and doing West Village, going to L.A. and doing Santa Monica Pier. These are the most sought-after pockets literally in our entire state. Yeah, so it was a study, precedent study, even though it was from different centuries sometimes, to understand where culture comes together with commerce and how you look at the way the world's changing and how you build a place where that flourishes. Because if we can do that in Dallas, we don't become big. We can become great. Um, An example of that would uh, take the Oakland Project I'm working now on Cedar Springs. Well, let's let's give background. You didn't. It's not. You bought it. You literally bought a neighborhood. You, yeah, you, you yeah. saw us, Abby and I saw you about a year ago at an event, and it's 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 always interesting when you see people like Mike that you just kind of long for the you know invigoration of what are you doing? And I'm like, you know, I think our big news at the time was we had won an award, and he's like, oh, I bought a neighborhood. I was like, excuse me. <laughs> it was literally an entire neighborhood yeah, and one yeah. of the most you know recognizable neighborhoods again in our city, in our state. so um, and, and culturally significant yeah. in, in, in a lot of ways. And, yeah, because I think at one point, Dallas had the second highest gay population in the country behind San Francisco. Uh-huh. And I don't know where we are right now, but the designated area historically was Oaklawn Cedar Springs. Yeah, and that's the heart of the LGBT community yeah. for North Texas, Yeah, no and, doubt. And, um, but imagine this, if I was telling you, okay, um, we're going to get these two buildings in New York. You went back to New York, a Rockefeller Rock Center. Yeah. And we're going to buy these two buildings, and I'm going to build an ice rink behind them. Trust me, this is going to be really cool. And then we're going to put this big building behind it to backstop it. We're going to call it 30 Rock. And it's going to be great. You kind of go, yeah, right. dude, you lost it. Yeah. That ice rink with Prometheus holding up the globe is the greatest central park in North American continent. And... It's just an ice rink. 
but it's how it really functions. So take those buildings on Oak Lawn, put an urban room behind it, and then flank it with buildings, and it will become, I hope, I think, I hope, <laughs> a significant cultural piece of our city fabric, but also a marker of perseverance backed supporting a community. If we can do that, talent will come to Dallas to be here. And jobs, you don't build for jobs. You build a great city fabric. Talent comes here because talent migrates and says, I want to be there. And then the jobs come streaming in. Why does Charles Schwab, Fidelity, um, we could go down the list. Goldman Sachs just announced another building for 5,000 5, people, not too far. Why are they coming here? You build the fabric. Caterpillar. And, and talent comes. Heard, was it Caterpillar two weeks Caterpillar ago? Caterpillar was a couple weeks tractor ago. Tractor Supply. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe not Tractor Supply. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, McKesson just came here. I mean, they're coming because talent's here, and talent's coming here because talent thinks it can find the answer to what it wants. Did you see the statistic yesterday? Um, I think it was in USA Today, and it talked about the amount of people that had moved to the top 10 cities that have gotten uh, a large push of new people over the past year. Number two is like 125,000 people in the country. Dallas was like 328,000 yeah, people yeah. In, in a year, and it's in large part because of people like you. Oh, I don't I don't, I don't, know about me, but hopefully no, I'll no, no, build the... the I, I mean, that's why in, in my other life... Um, I build, work on building the, the great parks for the city and the trail system and the pieces of fabric that come together. Because Chili's is great on Tuesday night with your two kids in uniform. You go there after a soccer game. You make a mess. You apologize to the people who served you. You put the kids in the car, clean them up, read them their book, and put them to bed. But on Saturday night with a partner, however that formation works, you don't really want to go to Chili's. You want to go someplace where you feel... You, whatever the, remember in the 80s, it was be like Mike, be like Michael yeah. Jordan. It's not be like Mike. It's, I just want to be, I'm Roger. I just want to be me, Roger. Whatever I am, I'm Roger. And I just want to Roger that. I want to feel good about it. Or even Rogers. Or just Rogers, you know, yeah. and you see you go there. And why do you go there? I don't know. I just feel good. And you want to, if you build those places, people understand them. But that had to come with challenges, you know, and I think for a guy like you, that's got 30 years of significant success and significant impact and again the most unique background you'll probably hear was someone who backpacked through europe who worked for you know the michael jordan of architecture went to ut went to harvard and is doing all this as you kind of grew in your faith as a business person what were the challenges you faced but more importantly how'd you overcome them to remain mike ablon throughout the journey yeah i think the biggest issue i've had has really um in construction there's an old joke do you want speed Quality or price? Pick two. <laughs> and because you can't have all three. Um, yeah, you can. It just means you don't do as much. And it's harder to get started, especially if you're sorting out the first thing. The most important thing is looking for that meaning, what matters. And if you're doing that, it's the hardest part of everything to me is getting a project started because. I'm not building another something that's already been built. Um, if you go to any great business school, Stanford, make up a name, they teach you nail it and scale it. Figure your model and then repeat it with, and get to scale, and that's how you make money. Um, it's called commodification, mass production, scale. 
if you want to build those places that are distinct, that you started listing them out, Santa Monica, um, Rockefeller Center. We could go through every city and start naming places, Fisherman's Wharf. Um, they're one-offs. And if you want to build one-offs, they're slower, they're more complicated. But for me, they, they're, they're, they're worth the work. So the hardest part is getting each one started because you're trying to convince a lot of debt and a lot of equity and a lot of people like to go the, do something different. Put that into like cold, hard terms. So like a lot of debt, a lot of people. So like being this visionary and somebody who would rather have a Santa Monica Pier versus a, an outlet mall, right, per se, like what did that look like? How, did, how, old, how, into, how quickly into your career did you face these challenges and how did you stay the course with, you know, the respectful stubbornness of, of, your, of your, you know, your drive? Um, I worked for uh, a number of years for Ross Pro, which was wonderful. And we started two big projects. One was Alliance, which is now a monster. And the other one is um, Victory with American Airlines and everything around them. And both of those were one-offs. So I had worked before that as an apprentice for Venturi, and we were doing one-offs, building a museum, um, a one -off, the National Galleries of Trafalgar Square in London or the Philadelphia Orchestra Hall or Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, and with Ross, we were doing bigger commercial or one-offs. So I guess to a certain degree, um, I, I had been inoculated to the a lot of the pain of knowing that that's just how it works. So I really never even thought about it. I just started doing it. Um, it is hard to get your first project on your own. What was your first project? <laughs> the design district. Good Lord. Yeah. Literally. Yeah, so it was 40 city blocks in one shot. And, and then, I mean, how much money went into even putting that project together? Uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions. And it was literally the first deal you did solo. That was, well, you're never solo. You've but got investors like, and partners and as a, as a business owner, yes. the, the first one you yeah, did. And, yeah. and, and what was the process? Yeah. How long I actually did had a, a one-man office at the time with an Alpha Graphics business card and a, uh, and a $99 website and a... Uh, $599 computer from, that I bought on the web from Dell. And you literally had 40 city blocks. That you, and you just get started. Wow. That's, I mean, and, but the process for getting that approved and the amount of people that gave you pushback, I mean, what was, what was that like? A difficult, um, as you would say, but you don't even think about it. You just go. Which again, that's a, that's such a, I hope y'all can appreciate the rarity of that headspace where most people, you know, like a business owner, I think less than 5% make it past a year, less than yeah. one and a half, less than one half of 1% make it past five years. But living in that like resilient headspace of just like, okay, here's a challenge. Let's face it. And let's head on is, is, is so rare. Do you feel like you were humbled throughout the process where it gave you like thicker skin? What, what was that like? Um, you know, you, you have to have thick skin in the business and I don't. You don't I have, have, a, have a layer of Kevlar on, and I'm a mush ball on the inside. Anybody who knows me knows that. Um, you have working in the business, and you have working on your business. Yeah. In your business is the craft of, develop, for me, developing. On the business is the craft of running a business, marketing, hiring, paying payroll, the logistics of it, um, getting debt and equity and returns and record reporting. And then there's the craft of actually building it. And um, you almost have to have two brains. And when you're working on your business, you turn that on and you get it done. And then you have to just turn it off and turn on your other brain, which is the craft of doing it. Um, also known as like, the best use of your time. Yeah, it's kind of like 
changing your kids' diapers, that's not fun, but it's just part of the process. So you just do it. Yeah. And you tune it out and then you love on your child and enjoy life. Yeah. And it's amazing how not a big deal it is changing the poop in your own kid's diaper. It just, it, it's part of it. So you just forget about it and you do it and you just keep going because what matters is your love for the kid. Yeah. What mattered for me, what matters for me is the love of what I'm doing and the rest of it, you just get up and grind like hell, get it done and then turn it all off and go craft. Do you remember when they said yes to the design district? Yeah, when it was finished. <laughs> but I'm saying like the moment where you actually knew that you were going to be able to move forward and, and put something together. Do you do you remember that? No. Because because you just were pressing on, you had too much to do. Yes. Do you regret that? Like, um, do you, I mean, because like, I, I live in the same headspace, right? And I think that for someone as accomplished as you, I think it's to remain humble and to not be a sellout, kind of the whole theme of this. I don't celebrate my wins ever. Literally, and I think it's because I don't want it to get to me, but also it's, you know, you know that it could all fall out from underneath you the next day, but it also makes you want to go and, you know, kind of chase that next thing. I, I have a box, and every time I get an award, I say, thank you, I really appreciate it. I appreciate whatever it is. And then I throw the thing in the box. So it's got diplomas and awards and all, and I never look at it. And then when they give me awards, you, seriously? I have a glass cabinet for awards on the other end of the office down there I never go to oh my and gosh. just put it down there. And I have nothing framed in my office. Well, th And this is why nothing, we're not going to take a tour of my office. Or, no, I don't even want to look at it. Oh it's the laurels God. of the past. Can It's not that you lose your passion. That oh, 80 years when I'm fogged in that mirror, yeah. I'll go back and look at him and get a laugh about it. But, yeah, you just go. We you had someone go. here the other day that was saying there's a reason that the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror, you know. Uh, and, and I think that there's probably a happy medium there. But also we're going to do a follow-up video where we go see how big the box is because my guess <laughs> is it's not a shoe box. It's probably like a cargo freight no, that, no. Uh, that, that's out there. Okay, so so back to the um, – Back to the business questions, and, and again, what made you you? Uh, I'm sure, cliche, in my mind, cliches are cliche for a reason, and I think the posters that you see in a fourth grade, a fourth grade classroom, it's there for a reason, yeah, and, and, yeah. and I, I want to lead to the advice section here, and I want you to let us know what's the best advice you ever received, and then the follow-up question is, what's the best advice you would give somebody? Um, best advice I've ever received. Um, I, I think I mentioned one of them, which was, Venturi, when he came in the moment, I said, if you don't quit on yourself, you might just win. What was really being said behind that is learn to find yourself to know when you're at your breaking point and be able to recognize it. And instead of snap, say, OK, downshift into a higher gear and hit the burners. Another one was um, Mr. Perot shows up one day at the office and says, take me on a drive. This is a literal story? Yeah. Oh. Like, okay, yes, sir. <laughs> so Mr. Perot, at the time had to be in his late 70s, early 80s, gets in the car, and I go driving the buildings that I'm building for the company. I'm walking him through them, and, and he's really interested, and he's walking through the mud with me, and I'm, I'm dying. Because, Had you been with him one-on-one -on -one before? Yeah, yeah. But we're going up steps of buildings that are half built. It's like, if I get this guy hurt, I'm dead. They're going to kill me. You know, they're going to take me out and bury me out in, in Torlingo with a shovel that doesn't exist for something, right? So on the way back to the office, he looks at me and says, remember, always remember, you're building for your grandchildren, even if you don't even have children yet. Huh. 
it was to me again, what was he really saying? Remember price, speed, quality, pick two? Pick three. Start with quality. Always start with quality because at the end, nobody remembers if it took you two weeks or three weeks. Nobody really remembers if it was a dollar or a dollar ten. But what stays is the quality. Hmm. Quality, quality. And then from there, um, if I had to say something to somebody, one of the things that life has taught me was quality will have a quantity all its own in life. Think about that as your friends. You can have 100 friends. Would you rather have 100 people you know? Or would you rather have those five people you could call up any time? Yeah. And love on, cry to, joke with. You don't have to explain anything. You can just talk to them when you feel good. Quality will have a quantity all its own in life. I like that. You know who Bob Bodine is by chance? Bob Doesn't Bo- he have the ice cream store around the corner? I don't think so. That was <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't okay. know. Um, it's a guy you'd really like. He's a local guy, Plano. Uh, he's, he's, he's got a book called The Power of Who, and I'm not a reader, but the premise of this book is when you're in sales, whether you're launching at our age or you're a teenager or it's your second career, you already know the five most important people you need to know, right? And I think it's a common mistake that a lot of salespeople make, is myself included. I got into it in my initial like your letters with the seven letters to uh, the guy that you mentored under, mine was Newt. And I finally just kept bugging him where he was this fascinating character where finally he said, come to my office, let's get this over with. And it led to a beautiful friendship, led to you, et cetera. But I wish people would take more of the approach that you're taking where it is really quality. And I think in a city like Dallas that's oversaturated with a lot of opportunity but also a lot of people, when people deviate in sales to try to go get to the unicorn, they leave the people behind that they should be dancing with. So it's interesting that you say that because I think that's one of my life's biggest regrets is that I came from a very humble background just where I was not popular, I didn't know anybody, and I got access to a different crowd in Dallas and the people that were loyal to me at the beginning, I kind of unintentionally brushed under the rug to get to this, you know, level of access, which I wish I would have just stayed with those people that loved me from the beginning. And it cost me a lot of time and money and, and heartache. I think if you just do what you do, there's a charisma to if somebody does something that has meaning, you can smell it. You can feel it. It resonates. And that has a charisma um, that will, on its own merits, on its own volition, grow you and your business. Because we all aspire to figure out how everybody else is doing it and do it, whatever it is. At the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, we don't all admire um, sometimes somebody because of something they have or do. Sometimes we admire them because they're just unabashedly being themselves. They're just doing whatever they do. And that in and of itself is cool. Yeah, even if you don't agree with it. And then the people who that resonates with, they'll kind of gather around. And yeah, if you find the good ones in life, you hang on to them. If you looked at my friends, I met some of them at Starbucks. Yeah. Some of my best, closest friends of the world. Met some of them sitting across the table for me working. I met Newt. You mentioned Newt a couple times. He was sitting across the table for me doing a deal. Seriously? Uh-huh. That's how I met him. Wow. And I pulled him aside afterwards and said, you're making a mistake. Here's your mistake. I'm the benefactor. I don't want to make a benefit off your mistake. Here's your mistake. If you want to change it, change it. I'm good. And that was 20-something years ago. Wow. And who knows how you meet him, but when you meet him, you grab onto him. I agree. Um, 
Okay, let's get back to the quality part and, and the Mike Avalon impact. You've done a lot of deals. You've been a part of a lot of significant evolution. When you look back at you know the halfway point of your career-ish, what's your what are your standouts? What do you feel has been the most impactful thing you've done, and what's been your most um, you know your, your most memorable? Yeah, I think I have an odd answer for that. Um, you know, I, we mentioned victory and alliance for for Mr. Perot and his company, and then on ours we've worked on. Preston Center, Frisco Square, Design District, Lower Oak Lawn, the Harbor in Rockwell. Have you been out there? Mm-hmm. That's pretty neat. Yeah. Um, and now on uh, on low on on um, Cedar Springs and Oak Lawn. Right now, I'd say it's the most important thing to me is out of all of it is Oak Lawn. But if you asked me a couple of years ago, I probably would have told you whatever project I was focused on on the time. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of living in the moment. Yeah. Where that is the most important project of my life. It's the most precious thing I can do. There's a lot of internal pressure to be able to stand up to what you've promised and, and do it to the very, very finest. And if you ask me in four years when I'm working on something else, I'll probably say whatever it is. So whatever is of the moment is what matters most. Yeah, but and, and I'm glad you brought up the pressure part because that's something I was going to ask you. What's it like literally carrying the weight of a neighborhood kind of on your shoulders? How do you go and get the voice of you know, the community but also kind of put it through your funnel and make sure that you're doing what's right for the long the long term, knowing that you know, like a neighborhood like Oak Lawn is, a, is a, you know, a unique neighborhood in itself, and I'm sure you want to keep that character, but how do you do that knowing that there's a lot of people you got to keep happy? And, um, and, and does it stress you out? Since we were talking about France, I've forgotten about this, but I'll talk about something that happened in France. Yeah. Um, somewhere in there that I left off, I went to school in Europe. Mm. I lived in France and went to school, and this is a school called Buzz Arts in Paris. It's the uh, Architectural Institute of France. And we're sitting in a museum, and the professor is this little short guy that looks like Picasso with the bald head and big eyes, but he's Greek. And... Um, he sits us in front of a column, and you'd recognize the column. It's the Greek column with the swirly things on top. It's called Ionic. And everybody, okay, pull out your sketch pad. Okay, get ready to sketch. You have three minutes. Draw that column, but only draw shadows. So everybody starts drawing with shadows. Says, Stop. That's three minutes. Flip. We're going to do it again. Draw it again, but only draw volumes. Ready to go. And everybody starts. Stop. That's three minutes. And you did it over and over, and we did it ten times shadow, line, volume. And the last time he said, okay, shake your hands out. Now it's 10 minutes. Draw. Draw, you're kind of confused, right? And uh, he said, no, no, just draw. Now, thank goodness the fool on the other side of me asked my question before I came out of my mouth. And he asks, um, what am I supposed to draw? <laughs> and the little guy's eyes burst into his head. And he starts yelling. Literally saying, you're the artist. Why are you asking me what to draw for art? Draw. So he starts drawing because he's scared to death. (laughs) And I'm kind of drawing, and 10 minutes goes by. He says, stop. And I look over at the girl next to me on the other side. And I'll never forget it because it was absolutely brilliant. Here's what she drew. She told the story of the column by how she drew it. So we're like the line of the column kind of swayed out in the middle so the optical illusion, it looked straight. She drew that in line. And when there was fluting, she's just a little bit of shadow and it came to the swirls. She has some of it in, in, in shadow, some of it in line, some of it in volume. But 
It was actually what was important about each part of the column that made it relevant. And together, it told the story of the column. She didn't draw the column. She drew the story of the column. I should have stole the drawing. Because it was really cool. What did you draw? A mess. I drew a holy mess because I was trying to learn how to draw. What about the guy next to you that asked the question? He was still shaking. (laughs) (laughs) But, But to your question of what do you do in the neighborhood... I think for me, I ask, I go look at it and I study the neighborhood. What does it matter if you live there? And that's all you think about. And then I look at it again. But what are you looking for? Like this, again, like get us inside your head. You're going to these very prolific and very, you're talking about suburbia and Rockwall. You're talking about something that's brand new in Frisco. You're talking about Preston Center that's kind of, you know, relived. What, what is it you're actually looking for from your set of eyes? Um, That's a great question. And the answer is it's different every time. Because what I'm looking for is what matters. What matters most. That's what I want to do with my life. With my life, I want to build to build what matters most. So in each place, there's something that has a deep meaning. And you're looking for that in that location. And if you can find it, then you try to figure out how to empower it, how to frame it, how to build it, and how to put it together, how to finance it. And so what I do is I start looking at the neighborhood. What's the community want? But I'm, okay, I'm going to ask it different. What is your process for looking at the neighborhood? Is it you getting into a car and driving? Is it you going to the neighborhood diner and sitting there all day? Is it you sitting? Like, what is that actual yes. process? Yeah, all of it. Yes. And, and again, it's different. If you're in a, in a deep urban fabric, it's a lot more of hanging out in the corner and looking out the window and then sitting there and drinking an iced tea while you're sitting on the curb or just walking around, or going there at sunrise, Mm. or going there on a weekend, or going there at night. Um, It's trying to drive in, trying to sit there and do some work, or go to a hotel. It's whatever it is. You want to look at it over and over until you start to develop this fabric inside of your soul of what's the soul that's happening there and what matters to the people who are there. It's if you, you know, Henry Ford, there's a, a story about Henry Ford on business. They said, Don Henry Ford, um, did you interview 100 people and ask them what they wanted? And he said, hell no. They just said a faster horse. <laughs> and sometimes you can't ask people because they don't know what to ask for. It's not that they're not bright. They're just trying to deal with life and what's there. If you can get a sense for what they really want, a lot of times if you put it there, they walk up and say, that's what we wanted. For instance, the one thing that's missing in Cedar Springs, there's no gathering point. There's a historical marker on the corner. And for that community, that's where they gather, but there's no place to gather. The one thing missing most in the whole neighborhood was the collective gathering spot. That's what the urban room, that's the ice rink. That's why you put it there and flank everything around it, because that's the piece that's missing. How do you come to that? You just go spend time. You go live it. Go be part of it. Do you feel like you have, uh, I'm going to try to word this intelligently, but do you struggle with the the identity of what you are most interested in, knowing that you have to go and obsess or you get to obsess over these different pockets where you find yourself kind of, I don't know, wa- like wandering a little bit with what you actually prefer? You know, because you have to go live in these neighborhoods and, 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 and live and die with very extreme different pockets of our city but does that give you, when you go home at night or when a project is over, you're kind of like, wait, what, what am I, right? What, 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 if I was a neighborhood, which one would I be? Is yeah, that- um, 
when I was in engineering school and you were problem solving, every problem was different, but you had a methodology by which you solved all problems. It was like an outline that is concrete enough, that is structured, but abstract enough to be flexible. Given, find, assume, solve. It's how you solve every engineering problem. And then within that, there's a process and you alternate that process. I do the same thing, hmm. which is it sounds random because I'm talking about the different things you're thinking about. But there's a highly structured process by which you start to put those together because at the end of the day, you got to build something that works. And it's all got to work or it doesn't work. So there's a very structured process that you go into or I go through in my head to organize it all and put it together. And once I get to that point, then I call the engineers, the architects, put the financial model, but you don't put a pencil down until you say, okay, I got it. Hmm. And then you go put the, then you go layer it all down and start working it through and iterate and iterate and iterate. Do you get pushback sometimes from people? Like <laughs> every single time. Yeah. And it's healthy. Yeah. Right. And you want to get that feedback. Um, most people are siloed. I've got somebody who owns a t-shirt shop. He's worried about getting people in to buy t-shirts. Have somebody who lives there. They're focused on living there. Right. And everything they're advocating for is very different. But most people have a very um, articulate position that they come from and you respect that. And there's a balancing act you've got to play with. So it's always pushed back. Look, it comes to me. You know this from business. It's a lot of stuff I do. I get the we're on we're on a podcast. I get the living tar beat out of me in the press at the beginning. And then you hope over time you produce to a level that. It then makes sense, and, and that criticism wanes, and there's a common affection for what you've done. But, yeah, there's a lot of criticism. I'm going to go off subject, not off subject, but I think to the whole theme of this podcast. The first time I remember somebody talking negatively about me online was one of the worst moments of my entire life, and it was such a setback just with everything. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, my God, they're talking. This is free publicity. And it's nothing negative about me, but with you, literally the responsibility factor, knowing that, the media is your enemy. How do you not go and cave and give in to their needs or to, you know, what they think they need versus a faster horse and you you know you uh, want to have a what? Huh? Yeah. What? Huh? Exactly. But I'm saying what's the process for that? You know, it's I mean again, easier said than done, but the higher up you get, the easier it is to shoot you down. And you're in a very you ran for mayor. Yeah, you, you go get in your car, you turn on the radio and you put on YouTube. You have a pity party for about 15 minutes and you get over it and then you go back to what matters most hmm. and get back to work. It does affect you and yeah. you have to absorb it and you have to be able to process it um, or you're going to be miserable. And I don't think you're supposed to go through life miserable. I think if for me, it was always um, whether it was running for mayor or building a project, it's well, why am I here? What matters to me? Why am I doing this? And go back to the affection for what, what are you really trying to accomplish and stay completely focused on what do you really want to try to get done? For me, it's build a great city. And I just go back to that. And the day I can't go back to it and find solace, I should find something else to do. Hmm. He's going to get his real estate license and then help sell the city differently. <laughs> um, so obviously our, our relationship is unique where we kind of met through other people and um, you have been able to have a gift for going straight to the top and getting access to people that maybe wouldn't give people like you and me the time of day if you didn't have the gusto, maybe some people the ignorance um, to go straight to people that are impactful. I am pay these people overseas, Newt, et cetera. 
what would be your advice to someone like me or somebody watching if they want to go and emulate a Mike Avalon? Like, what's the literal best way to get access to you? But more importantly, what's the technique for being sincere with trying to go to sell you to someone that's potentially going to change their entire life? Yeah. Uh, first of all, um, if you want to be like me, don't get a haircut. Get a haircut. <laughs> get a haircut. Get a haircut. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> At the Bad Hair Patrol. Yeah. Um, when people come to me or when I go to somebody else, you kind of wonder, what are they looking for? Are they looking for access? Are they looking for an easy ride at the top? Are they looking for um, v validation? Or are they looking for um, money? Are they looking for, you know, what, what's the agenda? And the people who usually get a return phone call are the people who really walk in and tell them, this is why I'm here. Hey, Sarah, can I talk to you? I'm focused on this idea and you're going down the road with it. Can I talk to you about it? Just very straightforward. So Sure. Or I'd like for you to look at an investment I'm doing. I don't want money. I want your feedback. Or I want your feedback and I'm going to ask you for money. It's when the, hey, do you have time to get together? That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like, you know, I'm, I'm going to fish around and then see what I can do. Um, I think at the end of the day, what really is behind that is, are you really sincere? And you can smell that out. And we all have time hmm. for people, for real people, sincere people. And the further you get, the less you want to make time for the people who aren't sincere. So the more you're you, the more you own who you are, all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and you say, here I am, and here's what I'm interested in up on front, then that builds a trust from the other person saying, okay, I know what they're looking for. I do have time or I don't have time for that. Um, I started my company with $10,000, a one-room office and no business. It's the worst business plan ever. <laughs> Harvard will do a case deal on how not to get started. Um, um, and I'm laughing at myself so much I forgot where I was going with it. No, you were you were just saying how why why would someone why would someone like you give someone like me a chance to get access to you? And kind of the, yeah. the what you were saying in short was you gotta start with the end in mind, but you gotta do yeah. it with a genuine approach. And so yeah, yeah. So, so you're chasing an idea, at least for me, from the very beginning. And when you approach people and say, This is what I wanna do and this is what I'm doing. It wouldn't happen in New York, I don't think. It probably wouldn't happen in Chicago. Dallas is a really open-minded business community. You don't succeed because you're good. You don't succeed because you work hard. You actually succeed because everybody around you wants you to succeed. We're a peer-promoting society. You succeed because everybody around you wants you to be successful, and that happens. And there's people will make time if you say, I'm here and I'm in the fight with you and you're sincere, um, maybe not the best answer, but I really think that sincerity no, it's is just, there's no other way around it. It's kind of like breaking bread with somebody. We've been sitting around the campfire for 100,000 years as, as a species for a reason. We're communal, and you want to sit around the campfire with people who you think are going to help you find your destiny, whether that's food, protection, love, humor, passion, whatever it is, we are a communal group. And if you come in and you fit the communal, you're invited. 
there's some groups where you're not going to be invited into. And then you can spend your head trying to, your, your, your life trying to butt your head in. I think you're wasting your time. Um, but people will invite you in. So if you walk in and say, here I am. Own it. Yeah, own it. That's, that's probably some of the best advice that we'll ever get. And it all centers around just being yourself. Where my favorite quote, which I put in the invite for you to come, I don't know who said it. It might have been not Henry Ford or Thoreau or somebody said, be yourself because everyone else is taken. Yeah. Who was that? I always use that as a joke. I would say, so what did you really want to be in life? I said, I wanted to be Brad Pitt, but the, he took the role. Yeah. So I'm going to be Mikey One Feather, and that's me. Yeah. I think the other one is if, if, if you can be anything, be Batman. If you can't be Batman, just be yourself. But, <laughs> but I think that epitomizes why I wanted to put this together and why I wanted you to be a part of it is that, you know, it's, it's easy, it's simple, but I think that gets harder as you become more successful and you embody what it's like to remain humble and to remain a leader, a servant leader, but to do it while you can still get sleep at night, which I think the, the follow-up is how much sleep do you get, but um, probably not much. Not much. Yeah. Well, let's... Um, but um, I actually... Everything's a choice. Yeah. Everything is a choice. If you own your destiny, then everything is a choice. And you don't not sleep because you're nervous. If you're nervous, that's an external pressure. If you're passionate, you sleep. Hmm. You just got to sleep. You got to sleep. You know, the balance question that we haven't talked about, um, if you're not healthy, you're not good to anybody, including yourself. And health doesn't mean you're working out at the gym. That means you have time to live, to love, to cry, to laugh, to um, have friends. And that actually makes you better at whatever it is you aspire to do. Your company does better when you're healthy. Yeah. So you do have to take care of that. And if you're losing sleep, that means there's something that you need to go fix. So go figure what it is and go fix it. Noted. Sleeping isn't really is to me, sleeping isn't a um a bodily function. It's kind of an abstract idea. Are are you comfortable in your own skin? Are you okay? Hmm. And when somebody says I'm not sleeping at night, what they're really saying is I'm not comfortable in my skin. But what if they have a newborn and the newborn's waking them up every 30 minutes? That's uh, That only lasts 18 years. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, um, that gives us some time for this podcast to get some momentum and for my daughter to uh, be old enough to appreciate um, the legend that is Mike Avalon. Uh, so. do, do I get to say Rogers that? Yeah, all, as many times as what's, you want. What's the proper closing here? Probably just I'm Rogers that. I, I mean, you, there... There is no proper closing, and I, I want to make sure before we do have our improper closing to thank you again for being a part of this. And I know that many people will appreciate your wisdom and your vulnerability and your story, which is it's a very unique one, and I think you can appreciate that. Thanks, as much as and I can. Uh, well, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Um, I think we were supposed to talk a little bit more about Dallas, and if you want to do that at another time, I'd I'd love to. I'll talk about Dallas. Any for me, that's more fun than talking about me. Talking about me is uncomfortable. Well, you are. I'd Dallas. love to talk about Dallas with you. A fifth generation Dallasite. We would be honored to have you on here and to have you talk about the city that you've helped build and that's built you as Anytime, well. Anytime, as long as we start with the weather report and the traffic, then we're good to go. We got our stick down. I'm in. <laughs> well, th thanks for being a part of this, and y'all. Thanks for watching. Thanks and Mike, for having me. Uh, we appreciate you and all that you do for our city. If you're not in Dallas, come to Dallas. And if you you need a real estate agent, I'm available. Exactly. All right. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much. Mike. And Roger's that. Roger's that.